I'm Charles Legg, compiler of the Daily Mail's long-running Answers to Correspondence page. Here we answer all the weird and wonderful questions sent in by our readers. In this podcast, I'm going to answer your questions on everything from entertainment to history, from science to sport, from the sensible to the surreal, all with the help of the Daily Mail's top experts. Now, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify, and leave us a review. Today I'd like to welcome Benedict LeVay, the Daily Mail rail expert, author of the excellent series Britain from the Rails, A Window Gazer's Guide. So Ben, when and why did you fall in love with the railways? Well, Charles, I've always been mocked as a train spotter, and actually that's the one thing I never did, write down all the numbers and everything. My granddad grew up on Indian railways, and my mum, they had their own train because he was an inspector of railways for the army and went up to the Khyber Pass on his train with armed guards and so on. And they built a railway to Baghdad during the first Gulf War. So I guess it might be in the blood. I don't know. But I I, I like travelling by train. I don't actually write down all the numbers. but A very admirable thing, too. And recording your journeys, obviously, in your books. Right, I'm going to hit you with the question number one, Ben. Which steam engine holds the speed record? Castle or the A4 Pacific Mallard? Well, as Molesworth would say, any fool know that it's Mallard. But it's interesting to, to raise this controversy because the controversy is based in, it's like Manchester United and Manchester City. It's based in, in this sort of long-term hatred of LNER fans and GWR fans. I'm talking about the Great British Railways there. And GWR was God's wonderful railway, if you're a fan, or Great Way Round before they built the Seven Tunnel. And if you were a fan of LNER, you liked um, Gresley's wonderful trains such as Flying Scotsman and the A4s, which were the streamlined steam engines, Mallard being the the record holder. And where the GWR people come in is where they say that that in terms of tractive effort, Clun Castle produced a much better run than Mallard ever did. And and that's true, but it's not the speed record. And um, there's no doubt that it was Mallard on... I had to write a chapter for Scotland for the rails that I'm doing now. And I wrote the whole chapter about the East Coast mainline, as we call it now, without referring to any notes and put all the dates and everything in. And the editors at that, the publishers were amazed that that it was all correct. So I must be a right nerd. (laughs) Um, But it was on the 3rd of July, 1938, that Joe Duddington drove Mallard down Stoke Bank between Grantham and Peterborough. And he'd been given permission to... to, um, let her have his its leash. He, an A4 driver I spoke to in um, a different one said that they were like greyhounds that were straining to go. They, You didn't make them go fast. They wanted to go fast, you know, like a, a, a Bentley car or a superb yacht. They just wanted to go. And, um, so they were normally know, quite held back, were they, Ben? Were they normally restrained? These yes, trains? they were. It's a question of holding them back rather than rather than pushing them. And she hurtled down that bank. And um, another person I spoke to was a very old gent who sat as a small boy, sat on a, a farm fence on one of these farm crossings on, on that stretch and saw her flash past screaming her whistle, you know, because they were so frightened that people were going to bring farm animals or whatever out, out in front of them. And what's interesting about that day where, where she got the world record, which will never be taken back by anybody for steam engines, and the whole idea was to beat the Germans, by the way, who'd done about two miles an hour lower, okay. um, which they did. Um, and I don't think it'll ever be beaten now, that record. But the whole, the whole thing, looking back on it now, 
is the engine when she got to Peterborough and to King's Cross was completely knackered. You know, the bearings were gone and she had to be towed away and, you know, they'd pushed her too hard or, or let her go too hard. But my point is that every train, service train going down there now does that speed, you know, the high-speed trains or the electric trains and the new Azuma trains, they all do 125, basically the same speed, and it's run in the mill. No, nothing gets damaged, nothing gets, you know, we just take it for granted. So Stoke Bank, is that quite a gradient? It's a gradual gradient, which is the best thing for, for a speed record. It's not steep at all, and it's straight, which is the other thing, you know, because if you've got speed restrictions at either end, then you're in trouble. So it's a really great spot for, for record. So does Clun Castle have any records then? In terms of prolonged power, I think you could give her the record. But when I was saying that um, GWR stood for God's Wonderful Railway, if you're a fan, actually, the cruelest acronym of that was, well, bearing in mind that the A4 was designed by Gresley, was Gresley was right. <laughs> and that, I mean, that just reduces um, GWR fans to rage or tears. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, um, and I understand Clun Castle's record anyway was overhauled by a reconstruction. Was that right? Yes, in later life. I can't remember the details, but they did rerun this trip and, and they actually did better than the original. So. Yeah, I think the Earl of Mount Edgecombe. That's it. The 50th yes. anniversary run of Clun Castle's actually knocked three minutes off the Clun Castle's time, ironically. Yeah, even though she was in preservation. That, that's right, another great GWR loco. So um, it's horses for courses. And of course, the, those great steep banks along the Devon Cornwall, they're a very different thing to the East Coast Main Line, which is pretty flat and a good racing ground. Why is standard gauge track four foot eight and a half inches wide? Well, people will remember run the Stevensons opening the first steam railway in um, public railway in 1825. I mean, you won't remember it happened, but they'll remember it from school books. And the gauge was four foot eight and a half. And, and they adapted what was then common for colliery trucks and so on, you know, as the most practical gauge. But the, actually, the thing that set that as the world standard gauge was a, a Greek horse's bum. <laughs> <laughs> because... If you take a horse's bum and you want it to pull something and you set a pair of shafts down each side of this horse to make a chariot or a cart, then you need to set the bearings there and the wheels on the outside. You end up with about four foot eight and a half. And this was confirmed, this theory of mine was confirmed several times, but um, particularly by archaeologists who thought they'd found a standard gauge railway in Greece when they dug up something, and there are these two grooves going down to a quarry or something, and um, they were exactly four foot eight and a half, but that was because they hadn't found a railway, but the Greek, the ancient Greeks had, had worn these grooves with their carts. So that's what you tend to end up with if you, if you set about designing a thing. And of course, Brunel, being this fantastic visionary, thought, well, let's, you know, let's think what would be the best possible thing, and he came up with something else, seven foot and a quarter, and on mountains, you know, you might have narrow gauge and so on. But basically, if you took a Roman chariot and put flanges on it, that's the sort of flaps at the bottom, you could run it into King's Cross. <laughs> okay. And, and actually coming to running into King's Cross might be appropriate because Queen Baudicea is allegedly buried under Platform 9. So, oh, is she? Okay. Um, she would have been, uh, she would have understood chariots. So why did Brunel come up with such a different gauge? 
Well, he always thought of what would be the best possible thing. You know, his ships, like the Great Eastern, were far too... Nobody wanted a ship that size and, and far in advance of the time. He he was a visionary, you know. He thought and asked to build a railway to um, Bristol. He he built a system that took you to New York, you know. He he asked to build a railway cheapest possible. He said, no, I won't. I'll build you the finest working in, in England. And he did, you know, the Great Western billiard table of a railway um, out of London, therefore avoiding all the towns that it could have served. <laughs> but he grew up in Chatham Dockyard, where his dad, um, Mark Isambard Brunel, was, was uh, a supervisor. And in that dockyard, there was a railway. You can imagine the toddler. This is just my own mad theory, right? The toddler Brunel was walking around. There was a railway at seven foot gauge, which was for the cranes. You know how they have tracks for the cranes to move up and down on docks yep. sometimes? This was the early 19th century, very early, or maybe the late 18th century, that's right. So the little Brunel toddler, three-year-old, would have sat on these rails and looked at these magnificent cranes going up and down, lucky not to be squashed. And when he came to build the Great Western, he just thought, what would be the best possible thing for the best comfort and the best carriage of goods and accommodation and speed? And he thought of that seven foot, and he added a quarter for smooth running, as he thought it would be appropriate. <laughs> so it was seven foot and a quarter. Uh, as with most things, Bruno was right but wrong. You know, his, his, like his atmospheric railway, it did actually work, but it wasn't the thing that was needed. And the trouble with seven foot and a quarter is when you got to Gloucester, you had to sort of change. Everyone had to get out and get into the standard gauge trains. You know, every pear, parsnip, parson, potato had to be lugged off one train into the next one and it, the break of gauge was 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 a great nuisance and in the end parliament just thought well we've had enough of this nonsense the the standard gauge trains will fit in the tunnels of the broad gauge trains so let's just make that the rule you know before i move on so standard gauge is that standard around most of the world now yes it is i mean you get um russian gauge and irish the irish go on the um duchess of battenberg's gauge it varies a little bit but in china in spain the new high-speed trains in spain are standard gauge you know the av all those spanish tracks are, are five foot three i think some countries use narrow gauge don't they so i mean malaysia i think they were used they're still using meter gauge aren't they for their high speed there's meter gauge in 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 southeast asia and there's uh, there's an imperial gauge from british empire days called Cape Gauge, I think it is three foot six, which operates in New Zealand. And it does, you know, if you have a smaller gauge, it tends to be cheaper to build. So that's why they did it. Or oh, I'm better curving around mountains, but it tends to be not so fast. Where did Isambard Kingdom Brunel get his name from? Well, Brunel's name tells you a story because the first name Isambard is, is pretty unusual here. My, I've called my son Isambard, by the way, in tribute to oh. him. Um, his middle name, he's never forgiven me, probably. But... <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful, he, it's a wonderful middle name. It is. And it means man of iron or glittering iron. And you could not have a more appropriate name for engineers um, than, than that name. And then he, his, his father, Mark Isambard Brunel, was um, Huguenot, who were being persecuted after uh, the, by the French, and then the, the revolution came along. And they so fled... so he, was, he was a Frenchman, was he? His father was a Frenchman in Rouen, and his, his mother was Sophia, Sophie, I think, Kingdom, which was, uh, oddly enough, I was, when I was uh, growing up in Hampshire, was the name of the local ironmongers. It is a local name, Kingdom. Ironmongers, again, you know, another connection. 
And she went to Rouen in the late 18th century and met Marcus and Barbara Brunel and they fled to England. And it's one of these cases where England taking in refugees like the Huguenots and so on had an enormous benefit because the things that the Brunels brought, brought to England, even against France, I mean, Henry Ford claimed to have invented mass production, but he didn't. Marquez and Brad Brunel did in Portsmouth Stockyard. He invented it mass producing pulley blocks for the Navy just before Trafalgar. You know, they, they, each ship needed hundreds of pulley blocks to operate. Marquez and Brad Brunel, the father, invented mass production because he realized that if one guy does one operation, like drilling the holes, and the next guy does a different operation, things move faster. And that's the principle behind all mass production. Was he quite an Anglophile, Mark Isambard? Well, he, he, he switched to backing the Royal Navy, at, um, uh, which was quite a brave thing to do if you're French. And, uh, you know, I think it's no exaggeration to say that we wouldn't have won the Battle of Trafalgar without his mass production of pulley blocks. And then his son gives us the Great Western Railway, the Great Eastern, and all his you know, Clifton Suspension Bridge and all his brilliant inventions, and none of which went quite um, smoothly, but, uh, you know, they're, they're a fantastic family. And his son was, I can't remember his surname now, but his Christian name now, but did the Blackfriars Bridge that we have today. So it was a succession of, of real... So if, you, if, if you were going to pick one of Isambard Kingdom Brunel's uh, works as his highest achievement, what, what would you go for, Ben? I'd go for the Great Western because people hold up Clifton Suspension Bridge, but that wasn't built during his lifetime. It was his plan. The atmospheric railway kind of worked, but didn't, you know, where trains were sucked along by the uh, vacuum. But the, the line out of Paddington, is, I mean, it certainly is until you get to Box Hill in near, near Bath, is just a billiard table. And, and think how much fuel's been saved over the years by that, tra- that track being so flat. And when he came to Maidenhead Bridge, he, he wanted to keep it flat. So he made the the lowest span brick bridge ever made in the world to leap over the Thames. And, and the authorities said, oh, well, that's not going to stand up, you know, because it was so shallow a, a shape. Um, it's not going to stand up. So he, he can you leave the timber that holds it up there? And Brunel being Brunel, he, he said, hey, it's all right. I'll, I'll leave it there because you're worried about it. But he eased it down an inch. So it wasn't holding up the bridge at all. It was just there until it rotted away. And even today, trains hurtle over that bridge at 125 miles an hour and massive freight trains of stone from the West Country go over it. No problem. Still there. Extraordinary. Didn't he build the first tunnel under the Thames as well? The, yes, the dad. The dad built the one at Rotherhithe. And oh. again, it was pioneering technology, very daring. It flooded several times. I think some guys were killed and they couldn't afford to. It's a typical Brunel scheme. You know, it was way ahead of their time. And they couldn't afford to build the approach roads going down into to make it a road through, which was the original idea. So it was never used for that. And it became a foot tunnel to get people from um, the sort of Surrey Keys area into the city of London for many years. And then um, when the Metropolitan Line wanted to build the East London Line, as it's called, and it's now the overground through Surrey Keys and up through Wapping to... They took over to get over and put railway trains in it. And it's really worth going to the Wapping End because you, you can see the original Brunel arches there, which were once shops were in these little alcoves. And, and it was, you know, fashionable. People would walk up and down when it was a foot tunnel. But it's still doing its job now. And it was so pioneering. I'm sorry to get so enthusiastic. that The water did break through a couple of times. But railwaymen have told me that when you walk through the tunnel to do the maintenance you can hear the beat of the propellers on on the boats on the Thames above you oh wow because, because it's quite thin 
you know, it's quite shallow under the, under the riverbed. And um, you can imagine it, it was a bit of a worry at the time. So can you walk through it? You say you could walk through it now, or is it guided? No, no, you could, when it was a foot tunnel, you could walk through it. No, oh, don't, do it don't do it now, it's an electrified railway. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> Thank you for the warning. Well, let's move on to our final question. How were roll-on, roll-off ferries invented? Well, I've just been looking at that for Scotland for the rails. It's a story I didn't really know, actually, that you think roll-on, roll-off ferries were introduced for cars. Actually, they weren't. And when I was a nipper, which is a very long time ago, cars were, I remember going to Denmark by a car from Harwich, and cars were lifted on by cranes with a, a, a sling under each wheel and put into the hold of the ship. And roll-on, roll-off hadn't happened for cars, but it happened for trains about 1850, because they wanted to connect Edinburgh northwards to get to Dundee and Aberdeen and so on. And a chap called Sir Thomas Booch came up with a brilliant thing, which was um, what he called the floating railway, which is what we would now call a train ferry. And so he, he said he wanted to run the trains off the ends of piers. And the directors looked very worried at that concept, you know. Is he you mad? You know? But what he did was he, he built a boat with rails on the deck. And to achieve this... He invented a, a thing that, that we've used ever since that has made roll-on, roll-off possible, which is called the link span, which is, uh, you know, when you drive a car ferry onto a car ferry, you go up a, a sort of ramp that, that, because it tilts up and down with the, the, the how, how loaded the boat is and the state of the tide, you can connect a ferry to the dock. So he invented the link span, which made all our roll-on, roll-off ferries possible. But if you think about it, with a train, the, the weight of a train can be quite enormous. And if you rolled a train on to one side of a boat, it would twist over and do some damage, maybe fall over or something. Thomas Beach's one went from Burnt Island to Granton near Edinburgh across the Firth of Forth. They didn't have the technology or the money to make a false bridge at 1850. You know, it came a bit later and they didn't have steel. Um, they had brought iron. So they just couldn't do it then. But a bit later, I remember, I mean, a lot later, I remember going on the night ferry to London to Paris, which was a big excitement for me. And um, they roll you onto the ferry at Dover, or they did in those days. And they had to take the train into two halves and roll them both up tracks simultaneously because the, the weight would have twisted the boat right. too much. So they'd have shunders pushing you up. And you're supposed to be asleep in your sleeping berth at this point. And, of course, you came to the, the, the join on the link span. It would go bong, bong <laughs> as it went over, bong, bong. Um, and wake everybody up. But I, I wasn't asleep anyway. because so, so when was that then? That ran from um, the beginning of the 20th century to the late, until the Eurostar started up in the tunnel. Um, and, and they kept some of them going for freight because if you had, you know, dangerous chemicals or explosives or something, you, you could, there were two routes, one from Harwich and one from Dover. And then you roll off again in, uh, or to, to in, you, in France, you rolled off in, in, in Dunkirk. And Hitler, you know the thing about the treaties or the peace deals signed in the car railway carriages at the end of yes. the World Wars. Hitler wanted to roll his carriage onto that train ferry um, at Dunkirk and through to Victoria to sign Britain's surrender oh my in, in, in that carriage. Well, he got two th one thing wrong was that it wouldn't have fitted through the tunnels at, um, at Sydenham Hill and Bromley. <laughs> it was the wrong size carriage but the other thing was that he ordered the ss to guard the train ferry you know this link span thing at dunkirk at the beginning of the war because he expected to invade britain and, and take the surrender in, in his carriage 
And so at the end of the war, they, the, the, the Germans duly blew up all the, all the dock facilities at Calais and Cherbourg and made it impossible to invade through a harbour, you know. But at the end of the war, the train ferry was the one service that could just resume because <laughs> because the SS was still guarding the um, the train ferry terminal at Dunkirk. And good thing too. Fantastic. Well, look, Ben, thank you ever so much for your time. That's been absolutely fascinating. Well, I've enjoyed it, but possibly more information than you wanted. No, I don't think so. You can never have too much information. (laughs) That's all we've got time for this week. But I'll be back with you and another expert guest in two weeks' time. Don't forget, you'll be able to listen back to this and all our other Mail Plus podcasts at mailplus.co.uk or via Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.